Okay, team, Tinakoto, good evening. Uh, and I am your host this evening. Welcome to our first webinar of 2023. Tonight on our panel, we have Marcus Renner, an anaesthetist and ICU physician from Dunedin, along with our rural hospital specialists, John O. Wills from Dunstan, Dave Dixon from Queenstown, and Joel Pirini from Kaitaia. And we're going to be discussing the management of the acutely unwell in rural New Zealand and explore the many factors that impact on our ability to do this. The session is run by the University of Otago's Section of Rural Health, along with the Division of Rural Hospital Medicine of the Rural New Zealand College of General Practitioners. So without further ado, I will hand over to Jono, Joel and Dave, just to introduce themselves, and then to Marcus. Kia ora katau, Jonathan Tako Ingoa. Um, I'm Jonathan, I'm, as Lucinda mentioned, working at Dunstan Hospital in Clyde. In a previous life, I worked with Marcus in the intensive care unit in Dunedin. And then I saw the light and jump ship and moved to small town New Zealand, but have an ongoing working relationship, both sending him work and also occasionally going down to help out on the unit to cover the odd shift and let their registrars orientate. So great to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yes, thank you. Dave? Sure. Yeah, I'm Dave Dixon. I'm an emergency medicine specialist with a background in rural doctor in Queenstown and also work for Western Australia for telehealth. And there's a similar story to Jono here, really. I used to work in ICU and was an ICU trainee for some time as a dual trainee and still love the fact I've got the links with the Dunedin colleagues and try and keep my skills up to date. And hopefully we'll try and do a bit more work down there, but work is getting very busy in Queenstown. So it's nice to be on the panel with everybody. Welcome. And Joel? Uh, tēnā koutou. My name's Joel Pirini. I'm a rural doctor working up at Kaitaia Hospital. I think I've only done my prescribed time in ICU in my rural hospital training, but we do see a lot of sick patients up here. We've got a pretty good relationship with our ICU in Whangarei, but it is a fair distance away. So I'm keen to get into the conversation tonight. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. And we'll hand over to you, Marcus. Thank you very much for your time today. It is really, really much appreciated. Thanks, Lucinda, for having me on the panel. I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me and speaking to my rural specialist colleagues, which is the first one for me. So the slides are fairly fresh. The panel, I think, is open to a disclaimer that we've had a run through yesterday just to see what discussion we could generate. And we certainly welcome any discussion during the slides. Lucinda is going to lead that. Thank you to you, Lucinda, for inviting me, Jono, Dave, and Joel being on the panel. Uh, just wanted to start with a bit of a disclaimer about myself, that people roughly know where I'm from and what my views are and why my views might be biased and what my role currently is. So aspects of the critically unwell in rural hospitals, it's a case study and considerations for retrieval and equity of care are the outlines of the session. I'm originally trained overseas in Germany, so I'm one of many international medical graduates in Aotearoa. New Zealand's pretty good with exporting their specialized workforce, and I've most recently given a talk for an anesthetic ICU conference. If you look at the number of international medical graduates in the specialist fields, we're looking at, depending on the area where you work, between 50 and 60%. It's massive. And with that comes the challenge itself. We came as a small family of four, a young family back in 2009. The children have long left the house. The parents are still here and have made the need in their home. I obviously work as a specialist in intensive care and anesthesia and enjoy both subspecialties. 
unfortunately, I've not worked other than a few locums here and there in other parts of Aotearoa. I'm a member of the ICU helicopter retrieval team. I coordinate inter-hospital transfers from all rural areas within Otago and Southland as my role as the on-call intensive care senior medical officer. I'm a huge advocate for point-of-care ultrasound with a focus on cardiac echo, so some of the slides will certainly carry a bias in that regard. I'm also on a side job as the medical director for the Helicopter Emergency Medical Services New Zealand, so that's the South Island provider of the rotary helicopter aeromedical ambulance from the five bases in Queenstown, Tyree, Dunedin, Greymouth, Nelson, and Christchurch. And I consider myself a strong advocate for minimizing inequities of care for our rural communities in both roles as the intensivist in Dunedin, but also as the medical director for the emergency service. And you can only think if you're discussing with NESO, the National Ambulance Sector Office, indications for dispatch, let's say, the influence, what that can have for rural New Zealand. So there needs to be a voice on those tables because otherwise you're very easily forgotten. Thinking about this talk coming up and thinking about our rural specialists, I thought we actually have quite a lot in common. We're both vocationally registered specialists. We both work in a rural environment and Dunedin would be considered a rural environment because the ED specialists come down for their rural immersion from Christchurch to Dunedin, let's say. We all have to provide a super broad spectrum of care and therefore it can sometimes be quite difficult for our recruitment. We sometimes have to refer patients for specialized care to other centers. Pediatrics go to Starship. Our neurosurgical patients, if our one remaining neurosurgeon in Dunedin is not covering, we'll have to go to Christchurch. We refer patients out for burns. All the patients for stroke clot retrieval say that go to a specialized center, which is the nearest uh, area is Christchurch for us in that regard. We will both find a difficulty in, in maintaining our competency and safety and providing this broad scope of practice that is required. Both of us are, you know, check of all trades, and it's very difficult to maintain your skill set in that regard. And we have a local disadvantage because patients at times can be far away from definite specialist care. The way I look at the current New Zealand health landscape is uh, there is massive strain on hospital beds. I've certainly never in my 13 to 14 years of having lived in Aotearoa, I've never seen the hospital sector as strained as it is currently. There's extensive budget constraints. Patients are getting older. They've got more comorbidities. They're increasingly complex and they're generally sicker. Our health workforce is aging and you can look at that. I personally take that data generally from the ASMS. Massive problem coming up for the health workforce in New Zealand. Healthcare is much more fragmented than it was. And the more rural we go, the more fragmented it becomes. On one hand, care is supposed to be delivered closer to home and family and far now. On the other hand, higher specialist care will always be delivered only in higher specialized tertiary centers for financial reasons and logistical reasons. So that means transport options will be required for that. So my prediction overall is that we as intensivist rural specialists Retrieval services, we will get busier with these services that we have to offer to rural New Zealanders. In preparation for this talk, general thoughts with regards to the critically unwell in rural New Zealand. I think overall it's fair to say that presentations of patients with an acute, critically unwell, acute life-threatening condition is overall rare. 
And I take those numbers from a paper that Rory Miller has published recently with the colleagues up in Thames. He was speaking about a very small number of patients that are transferred out of his center, roughly 0.6%, whereas other centers would probably transfer as many as 10% of their patients probably to higher specialist centers. I think overall, it's fair to say that it's a high-risk, low-occurrence situation for you in the rural facilities. So you need a strategy to manage this. And you can look at general strategies, how to manage high-risk, low-frequency tasks. For us, let's say in the ICU or in the ambulance uh, pre-hospital sector, the strategies that I've come across are exposure of the colleagues to high caseloads over a range of specialties prior to going into those remote areas where you see less of these problems. Simulation is certainly one that comes to mind. Placements in subspecialty areas. We've got our paramedics and theaters for RSI. We've been approached as intensivist anesthetists for intubation skills in theater. We've been approached by colleagues for placement of arterial lines, how to manage patients on vasopressors, and so on. Checklists is certainly something that comes in handy in those situations. Telehealth and the last straw really is sometimes transport to get the patient out and to hire skilled care at tertiary centers. Overall, you need a systematic approach to high-stress situation because only that will benefit you to manage your patient and your team well. And so we were going to stop at that point when we, Marcus, and we were going to have a chat with the panel yeah. around the accessibility and what we find most useful in terms of how we approach this, maintaining our competencies and a concept that we quite liked, didn't we, around the high-risk, low-frequency situations. Mm. So. Do one of you want to start around talking about that? Because obviously Dave and Jono run papers and things too, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess to pick up on the first one, the Expose, certainly the rural medicine training program is designed to make sure our registrars have some exposure. And that's great at a training level. And then it becomes, well, how do you maintain that? And I don't know, I sit on the fence, to be honest. I've purposely chosen to go back and continue to work in that environment to maintain it. But I think it's great to have a few people in a rural hospital that maintain that and then can expose their colleagues in the workforce. But I don't think it's realistic to expect everyone to, mm. which then I guess pops you a bit further down that line and simulation both on the courses and certainly the risk course um, so either insight you simulation, which is great if you can run it in your workplace or getting away to the courses is the next best thing. Um, but you know, I'm well aware that I work in a fairly well, by rural comparison, well-resourced <laughs> hospital. And Joel rightly brought up the aspects of actually getting teams away for simulation and having feet on the ground while you release your doctors can be a real challenge. And you talked about Joel, about how hard it has been to get a team down to do one of these courses. So any thoughts on how you can manage that other than keep trying? I was actually going to talk to you and Dave and see if you wanted to come up and do a locum in May. <laughs> um, look after the place for us while we're away. I don't know. It's, it's tough and it's probably tough for lots of people out there who are on the chat tonight getting away for important CME stuff. And this would definitely be important for when you work in a small team and again high risk low frequency situations so I guess it's up to us to see what we can manage within our team up to our 
management to support us to get away and do these things. Mm. Or I guess in time, whether or not these courses can come to us rather than having them in a fixed building somewhere in the South Island, how can we make them mobile and bring them to places like Kaitaia? Yeah, we've got the trauma networks are actually about to come to New Zealand. Sorry, to come to Queenstown. They've run through most of the emergency departments in New Zealand now. And that's part of coming from sort of head of trauma to come down and run an in-situ simulation in the place where you are working with the team you are working, which is also the ethos of the rural in-situ simulation course that we run in Ashburton of taking the team. But this is rather than taking a team elsewhere to practice of bringing a team in to practice in the location that you're actually doing. And I think simulation is really important and it's a great thing to get into. But obviously in those places where it's hard to send people elsewhere, I suspect it is also hard to have the time and enough people on the floor in a resource poor setting to get regular simulation. But I think it probably is something that the culture needs to change and improve and for management to recognize that as a really important part of keeping the skills yeah. of the rural hospitals up to scratch to match the sicker populations that we're actually seeing and some of the difficulties we're having with transporting patients at times. Yeah, I can't support that enough that you actually do practice that the course comes to you, Joel, because as seen with network and said, you know, you practice NEDs, theaters, obstetrics ward, knowing your environment is so important for those scenarios and your teams. So training in, in your common areas and facilities is adamant, is very high importance. And I think it's not just the technical skill of saying I can put a tube in or I can give some drugs. Actually, probably I think the most important thing that I think is actually the teamwork and how you lead and how you follow and how you sort of control the culture and the tempo of that resuscitation. So it is a calm resuscitation when these things happen, because I think it is something that comes with practice and repetition. And that's one thing that we struggle with because we see these sort of low frequency, high risk scenarios less commonly in a tertiary setting. Mm. We were going to mention telehealth and the experience around telehealth and you who uses telehealth. I'm working for WA using telehealth to support the rural. So there's mostly nursing workforce, but some places with doctors as well to support and be sort of an over the shoulder person to help and make decisions and take some of the phone calls away from the team on the floor so that they can actually manage those things. I do think that could be something in some of the New Zealand rural points where you can have it when you have extra help of someone else and I think maybe Joel you can talk about this in terms of Marcus for down south we tried to make the culture of a one phone call but that can be quite different is that right in the North Island Joel in your experience for how many phone calls you may need to make in terms of getting a retrieval off the ground and speaking to the right people and getting the right advice so it's certainly got a role. Yeah I think everyone would like it to ideally be one phone call and everything happens from there but it never is in my context and we've also I don't know what it's like in the south but we've also got this dilemma where we have our secondary services in Whangarei and our tertiary services in Auckland and there's these you know those funny things like someone who based on my assessment probably needs to see a neurosurgeon but the neurosurgeon won't see them until they've had a mm. CT scan <laughs> and they have to go to Whangarei and get a CT scan but there's no neurosurgeon there just Weird things that happen like that, but it's not uncommon. We do use telehealth quite a bit with support from our ICU colleagues in Whangarei. And often they can be, because we generally, you know, these things always happen when there's skeleton staff on on a weekend or early hours of the morning. So generally they can be that person who's literally standing back, doesn't have a sort of goal 
that they're trying to achieve, they can look at the bigger picture and be helping to to troubleshoot and see the things that we've missed. And also the other thing I've found useful is when there is a critically unwell patient, there's whānau there at the bedside and we're trying to make decisions about what we do here in Kaitaia. When we move the patient or if we're going to move the patient, we actually have our ICU colleagues involved in that discussion over the screen with the family there, which I, I think is useful for me as the doc looking after the patient, but I imagine is really useful for the family as well. Have you got any tips or tricks, Joel, about how you manage that sort of multiple phone calls or how you streamline that or get the most out of those phone calls so that you're not spending half an hour making back-to-back phone calls? Oh, gee, I hope there's no subspecialty registrars listening tonight. <laughs> talk, talk to the bosses. Um, yeah. <laughs> probably number one, but not, you know, it's not all subspecialty registrars who, who you know, the problem is, is that Often you'll speak to them and then they say, I've just got to go and talk to my boss about it. And then they have to go and talk to the boss and then they have to come back and call you. And there's just a delay there. And you need a boss to accept the patient. I've found actually in the last year, one of my tactics has been calling Auckland City Hospital ED and getting the patient accepted by ED in Auckland if I know they need to go there for vascular neurosurgery or something that's not in Whangarei. And I've had really good success with talking to my emergency colleagues in Auckland City Hospital and, and having them accept patients, arrange the imaging they need, and then um, referring them on to those subspecialty teams. It's interesting there, isn't it? Because you're talking to another generalist, and I feel like they get it more. <laughs> I think it comes down to also developing those relationships. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jono and Marcus, but mm. I feel like Dunstan, haven't you superseded talking to Regis and now you just talk to the on-call SMO consultant or? Um, we're probably going a bit beyond the discussion there, but mm. yeah, I, I mean, just, if it's, you know, if that, it's just a, some of the things. If it's not time critical and I need to send someone off and talk to the registrar and tell them that they need to go, if I want advice, I'll call the boss. Mm. Yeah. And if I need an ICU transfer in a hurry, I ring the boss. Mm. Um, yeah. And you know, I've, me and Marcus have grown in an environment where I think it hopefully works fairly well for both sides of us. Yeah, Absolutely. relationships are key. Yep. The, the only consideration that I'd like to add to telehealth as well, if you look at the overall financial aspects of all of those uh, systems mentioned here that you can do for high-risk, low-frequency tasks, telehealth will be a good one actually to invest into. I mean, if we can prevent two or three helicopter rides per year, I'm not going to talk about costs, the cons- consequences that come for patients being displaced from their home in, in Farnau as well. Uh, if you can prevent two or three retrievals, I'm sure that your telehealth system is well-financed just by purely doing that. Mm, and that's, that, that comes from a retrievalist. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was just a quick comment here from Justin, who works on the West Coast. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for your expertise. Curious to know your opinion on when we might see rural hospital docs working regularly amongst and alongside HEMS, ICP, and SMO uh-huh. colleagues in high acuity, heli care context. Might be a bit specialist. Is it? Uh, 
Yeah, it's quite a quite. Thank you. That's a very specialized question, I guess. Again, in the South Island context, because not all helicopter workforces are paramedic, paramedic. Some are doctor, paramedic, and uh, work differently than we work down here. I guess the answer will be we're open to everything, and as long as rosters allow, we you know can talk about certain things. But the reality is, I, I've been here for thirteen or fourteen years now. The ICU specialist rosters have always been thin, and uh, therefore we have to live with the realities and what is available to us down here. So I, I can't give a definite answer on any of the questions just asked. Maybe if Justin Skeeney gives you a bell. He can. <laughs> okay, you take it away, Marcus. Go All right, okay. Thing. So just, just to complete the slides on the journalist's thoughts about the critically unwell in rural New Zealand, obviously you have to have some thoughts on whether your resources and resources meaning staff equipment diagnostics your facilities are adequate to manage this patient well how well you've got access to ambulance transport including aeromedical retrieval teams if required and how efficient your collaboration with your urban colleagues and we've heard some of those examples in the previous discussions just now from a very personal point of view our interface between ICU rural or ICU urban in Dunedin and our tertiary referral centers, what's worked well for us. I think most of the time we apply the one phone call policy, particularly if the mission's time critical, we would never delay a retrieval because we haven't got an admitting team. We will always go first and then ask the admitting teams later down the track. So there's no delay in that regard. Sometimes we get phone calls not for retrieval requests. Sometimes we just get called for advice, which I think is great that our rural colleagues are brave enough, you know, to run some of their thoughts past us and see whether they're managing a patient as we would do in, in Dunedin and whether they're on the right track with the patient just in front of them. And sometimes we would say, actually, maybe the patient's better with us. You don't need to look after him in rural New Zealand. We're happy to, to have him here in our intensive care unit. And that was not the intention of the person calling us. And sometimes it's really just for advice. So knowing and trusting each other is really important. And having had a look at the thumbnails with the names going on to this session here, it felt like there is a lot of familiar names listening into the session tonight. And that's what it's about. Uh, you need to know your colleagues. You need to trust each other. If Jono calls me, he probably knows where I'm sitting in the unit and how we roll, how our system works. That's really important. So as Jono said, all of our rural trainees normally rotate through the intensive care unit for six months. So we get to know them before they go more rural. Some of our then rural specialist SMOs support our RMO roster during registrar change over periods. So this is when the old RMOs are already leaving because they need to shift their homes and families and dogs and cats and bikes and the new ones coming in. So this is, uh, and we normally orientate them for a whole week. So three days in the intensive care unit, two days for the aeromedical system. And that's normally when our rural colleagues would come into the unit and, and help us support the roster, which is fantastic for both. So it really helps both sides. And some of our colleagues that have gone through the ICU and are familiar with the aeromedical system support us on the AME roster. The criteria for that are obviously that they have done a most recent AME course, that they maintain their LA skills, and that they maintain their orientation to the aircrafts. What are other things that uh, have worked well? Multidisciplinary simulation I put here. So we did a prompt course with the paramedics, with the midwives, with the rural specialists, with the intensivist at the Tyree hangar. 
we wanted to do it initially in Dunstan, but didn't work out that way for whatever reason. I think it was the faculty for the prom course and the gear that is involved in those courses. You're surprised how many boxes of gear you need for a prom course. We've implemented down here in the South a lot of instrument flying rule routes. That means some weeks we fly 30% through cloud and rain where you would otherwise, the pilots would not have visibility where we now do have access to the patient just purely with our highways in the sky to get to our rural centers and the system's getting better and better. And it's mainly the local helicopter charity trusts that are supporting the implementation of those IFR routes. And that demonstrated a lot of unmet demand, actually, you know, how many patients we now actually all of a sudden have access to. We've got a plan B in place if the helicopter cannot fly because of sometimes Queenstown weather, Christchurch weather, Dunstan weather with the icing levels are sometimes still low so that the helicopter actually cannot fly. And you still need a certain amount of visibility to take off with the helicopter and to land. So if that those criteria cannot be met, we also sometimes respond by St. John ambulances by road. So understanding the local resource in your rural facilities, if you take those phone calls at an intensivist, is really key. And understand the capabilities of that center as well. Probably the most difficult role if you come in as a new consultant into our system here to get to know that system takes, uh, takes probably a year, if not more, to understand how that works. But I mean, we were talking lots about retrieval here. For me, the focus really has to be that you're resourced with the appropriate resources at your end with adequate staffing levels, equipment, meaning CT most of the time, lab diagnostics, and maybe access to ultrasound and x-ray would be the key ones for me here, because only a very small amount of patients will actually need to transfer. So I would like to run everyone past a case that probably is not too familiar and not too infrequent. If Lucinda is happy for me to just carry on with the case from here on. Absolutely. Please uh, do, okay. Marcus. Thank so you. We've, uh, we've got a 67-year-old male presenting to one of the rural centers in Aotearoa with a two-day history of high fevers, cough, shortness of breath. He's known to have type 2 diabetes, got mild hypertension, mild COPD. On admission, he appears to be ill. He's coughing, he's restless, he's sleepy, and just about rousable. His temperature is 40.2, his blood pressure 80 over 40. Mm -hmm. His heart rate is 140 irregular and his respirate is 29. His skin is mottled and that's the case on upper and lower limbs actually. So the case carries on on physical examination and auscultation. This patient's obviously got crackles over the right lower and middle zone. On x-ray, it shows consolidation in the right and middle lower zone, which goes with your auscultation. Lab results, he presents with metabolic acidosis, a bicarb of 16 and a lactate of 4. He's hypoxic, he's hyperventilating, but not compensating his metabolic acidosis. Uh, his saturations are low, and that's despite 2 liters of nasal cannula oxygen. He's anemic with hemoglobin of almost 11. He's got elevated white blood cells of 16, and 80% of those are granulocytes. His platelets are low at 16. His creatinine is elevated 160, urea 14. Uh, his LFTs are slightly deranged, and the bilirubins at the upper end as well. His blood sugar levels is 14. So the first question for me approaching those patients is, is there organ dysfunction? And clearly with this patient, multiple organs are deranged. He's obviously got hypoxic respiratory failure. I think that's the better term than type 1 respiratory failure. 
He's got cardiovascular failure. He's in shock. He might have septic cardiomyopathy. He's got acute brain dysfunction. He's got acute kidney G, acute liver injury, and he's thrombocytopenic, which in the context of sepsis is multifactorial. Our priorities are correcting tissue hypoxemia and hypoperfusion. So for the B problem, we would supplement oxygen, and that can start with nasal prongs, as in this scenario here, high-flow nasal prongs as the next step, non-invasive ventilation, PEEP or CPAP, and some patients might require invasive ventilation. For the C problem, I think we would all agree that this patient requires fluid resuscitation initially. So we have to think about what are our targets actually for our fluid resuscitation strategy? Is that a JVP? Is that a, a heart rate that comes down? Is that a blood pressure that comes up? Are we limited with our fluid resuscitation purely by impairment of oxygenation because the patient doesn't tolerate a whole lot of fluid? And when's our threshold to stop early vasoconstrictors or even inotropes on this patient? I know you'll come into the details there, Marcus, yeah. but I yeah. yeah, I saw the prep for this last night and even watching it come up, you see those slides and as a rural generalist, you go, oh, oh crap, um, nothing works, they're broken, where do I start? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that feeling I'm sure is not unfamiliar for a lot of the audience and it certainly is for me and that your last slide just reiterated why I go back to ICU to play every so often mm -hmm. because it all looks bad, but then you boil it down to, well, you, we'll come back to A because yeah. you've skipped over it as a, yes. his airway is fine, but mm -hmm. then there is a B and a C problem. Yes, yeah. And so mm -hmm. we will address the B problem and then we'll move, move on to the C problem. Absolutely. And yep. suddenly mm -hmm. your method for what you're going to do with this patient is so much clearer. And yep. that one slide there is exactly why a systematic approach is so important. Absolutely. I guess everyone that's been in ICU for a number of weeks or, or months will know that we're hugely systematic. Uh, there's not much that we don't manage with simple uh, ABCD and a lot of this uh, supportive therapy. I will come to the strategic approach. So the methodological approach that those patients are being dealt with best. So with regards to preventing additional deterioration and further organ dysfunction, source control is really important and should be at the very top of your list. If there is the opportunity to take blood cultures, the advice is to take early blood cultures prior to administering early empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics. This diagram here is from a study done by Kumar many, many years ago, and there is no intensive care conference where this diagram is not shared. It does indicate that Every hour where you're not treating the patient with adequate empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics, your mortality increases by 6%. So if you can have that number in the back of your mind, I think that'll help you think about early administration of IV and broad-spectrum antibiotics. With regards to optimization of the C system, I think the best contacts to think of is, is preload, meaning giving volume for most of these patients, pump, meaning the heart. And I like to differentiate between right heart problems and left heart problems, and then afterload. And if the patient doesn't respond well to your treatments, then there is certainly a role for stepping back a little bit and thinking, am I actually dealing solely only with septic shock uh, in this patient here? Or is there a combination of shock patterns? And again, you might be dealing with a patient that has a baseline congestive heart failure and has got a very poor ventricle or might have some valvular disease. And now he's got septic uh, paleomyopathy and septic shock on top of that. So there is very often, most of the time, actually combination of shock pictures. 
With regards to prognostication, and I'm sure we'll have a bit of a discussion going on whether escalation is appropriate and whether this patient should be retrieved or not, you have to set realistic expectations because you will be asked and you need to know what the mortality of your patient is and the ballpark figure that we have for someone that presents in septic shock with single organ dysfunction. The mortality is probably as high as still, even these days, uh, S20%, which is massive. And the only patient group that is probably not within that range are the patients with urosepsis that generally look pretty unwell and bounce back pretty quickly. But for a pneumonia, that would certainly still hold true. The more organ failures you have, the higher will be your mortality. And you can see some numbers from the SOAP study there. So for organ dysfunction, Hospital mortality, if you're in, or ICU mortality, if you're in septic shock, is certainly greater than 50%. And that needs to be known by you and that needs to be shared with the patient, the family. So be systematic, as Shano said, and simple also in your approach. So go A, B, C, D, E. A is obviously for airway. In this patient, the airway is patent, patient's confused, but he's still vocalizing. So there is no issue in that regard. From a B point of view, the patient's tachypnic and hypoxic. So you're going to administer some oxygen via nasal prongs initially, then mask. High flow nasal prongs will generate a little bit of PEEP. You can administer, if your oxygen requirements are too high, you can apply pressure and that can be done via PEEP or continuous positive airway pressure, which are not exactly the same, but similar in this context. And if that doesn't help, the patient might require, or if there's an A problem, the patient might require invasive ventilation. You're going to think, are there contraindications to non-invasive ventilation? And I'm thinking about the obstructed patient who's got a short bowel obstruction, abdominal sepsis, who's got an ileus, whose GCS is eight. So he's probably not a patient that you should place on non-invasive ventilation with a tight-fitting, almost sacrificating mask. And there is other contraindications, obviously, to NIV that might be the hugely restless patient initially or the patient that is not protecting his or her airways. And really important here, if particularly if you haven't got access to a radiology department in the middle of the night, the role of point-of-care lung ultrasound for your differentials. This is what a point-of-care lung ultrasound study could look like. So obviously, two images done with a phased array probe, and you can see... Uh, you'd have the probe in the back towards the probably the kidney area of the patient looking upwards towards the lungs a little bit higher and you'd see the diaphragm you'd see the spleen on the left hand side and then you can see consolidated lung which looks exactly like liver here or the spleen so this is what we mean by hepatization of lung tissue other features that you might see is positive air bronchognems and the lung ultrasound equivalent for that are snowball artifacts. Uh, so this is what you'd see as a positive bronchognemogram on x-ray. So this is air within the lung tissue. So this is what consolidated lung would look like on a lung ultrasound. And again, you know, for years we thought lung ultrasound wasn't adequate for diagnostics, but it's a great tool. And we've certainly, we're using it a lot on a, almost on a daily basis in the intensive care unit. Just With before you move on to C, Marcus, yeah. I certainly know that, you know, as you highlighted, uh, rural hospital medicine's been quite forward thinking in the use of ultrasound and even there's a whole year long training program that people out of rural hospital medicine yeah. clamour to get onto. But just going back to C, if our team want to discuss, uh, back to B, sorry, in terms of managing B, just from a rural hospital point of view, is there comments around the 
use or the management of B on the team? We had a discussion last night. Yeah, I'm a, oh, you go, Dave. Well, I think, yeah, I think it is. You really want to know what's going on with the patient before you suddenly put your CPAP onto the patient. Lung ultrasound is great because one of the other things you can do is look for a pneumothorax before you put someone on. And that's something that I've seen multiple times before. Someone comes in an extremist and you think they've got pneumonia or just another COPD exacerbation and they've got a pneumothorax that you very rapidly made worse. So I think it's a great tool for pneumonia. I mean, heart failure is another sort of perfect cause where people can rapidly turn around to the point of avoiding uh, to avoid intubating or to optimizing before intubation and it certainly can be seen as a time buying uh, sort of way to optimize a patient you think is likely to end up needing intubation in, in any case because you do if you're going to intubate a patient you do need to create time to be able to do things slowly and methodically because it's very rare that you do need a crash intubation and that's usually when things actually go wrong if you don't actually prepare so I think yeah first think about who you're going to use it in how you're going to use it and we talked a bit in terms of how you put it on a patient maybe they're agitated and and the sort of go go slow start with a low level of pressure talk to the patient about what you're going to do calm them down using words rather than medications and clearly explaining what they're going to do because there's nothing that's going to sort of escalate the system more by suddenly put a tight fitting mask on a patient that feels claustrophobic. Whereas if you do it the other way, nice and slowly and explain, as long as the patient's able to do that, normally you can get past that anxiety. So I think that would be my, definitely be my plan A. Yeah, I think that getting someone onto CPAP or BiPAP, the most important thing you need is an experienced nurse that can talk mm. them through it. Yeah, I've like simple rules for things and if someone's hypoxic they don't have enough oxygen you give them oxygen and if that doesn't work you give them pressure to push the oxygen in harder unless there's a reason not to and Dave's talked about a few of those and then my third part so is there a reason not to give CPAP if you need it or is there a condition that will respond well to it like heart failure yeah. and then the final question for me is are they ventilating so is their CO2 okay mm. and so if the CO2 is not, then you need more than just pressure. You need ventilation. So you need to go to BiPAP or, of course, invasive ventilation. But it's a three-step process, nice and simple. Oxygen plus or minus pressure plus or minus ventilation. I mean, they've been around for a long time now, haven't they, non-invasive ventilation. But, you know, in terms of as a clinician being aware of what your capabilities are and what you feel comfortable with as well as the capacity and capabilities of your centre, is quite key because if you can manage someone for a period of time before the retrieval team gets there on non-invasive, you mm. potentially will do less harm than if you attempt a invasive ventilation process, won't you? So, and that can be a really good yeah. thing to discuss. Yeah, I'd be keen to bring Joel in it, you know, from multiple reasons, Joel, but this part of the discussion, which we've alluded to briefly is around discussing this with the patient and just from being culturally competent you know assumptions are the mother of all mistakes and assumptions are a grave problem um we talked briefly about health literacy and how there's some good evidence around the poorest health literacy can be in rural New Zealand in men and in Māori so you know there's a number of factors there that we're going to see as rural clinicians in terms of the patients that you see in the north have you got some or just anywhere in New Zealand, particularly around our Māori patients. Have you got any pointers you could give us, Joel? 
Oh, look, I think when we were talking last night, we all identified the what should be common knowledge that these patients, when they're Māori, are going to be coming in sicker, they're going to be younger, they've got more difficult access to all of healthcare, but the stuff that prevents them getting the complications as well. And you're going to see these guys in their 50s and 60s, not their 70s and 80s, and you know, some of them are going to come with undiagnosed COPD who already have an element of lung failure. They're going to come with undiagnosed hypertension, undiagnosed diabetes, or, or if they are known about, they're not going to be optimally treated. So we, we talked about organ dysfunction and how that correlates with mortality when you're this sick. I don't know if I've got the right answer or, or the right explanation about what should be done, but you know, to think that these patients are already at a distance from this higher level of care, they're potentially going to be considered not as great candidates to enter an ICU setting, but none of it's their fault. It's the fault of our system that hasn't served them well and has got them to this point or not got them to a very good point. I don't know if that really answers your question, Lucinda, but I think it's really important stuff for us to all think about. And when we have those discussions about escalating care to think about that these these are uh, this will be a population of people who haven't had good care so far and they've missed mm. out on a lot of stuff and how can we at that moment in time or how can we in our role as the rural hospital doctor the intensivist the retrievalist whatever do as much as we can to serve these patients better than what they've been served so far i still it's, don't think i've answered your question yeah. no here here i think yeah it's really important that equality versus equity argument, isn't it? And going back to Marcus's slide about mortality and organ dysfunction, I guess what has happened prior to the patient getting to you at that time is somewhat irrelevant, but we don't want to be part of a self-fulfilling prophecy that there's already a bit of pre-existing organ dysfunction. So we identify that they might be at high risk and don't provide as aggressive care, mm. which will, of course, make all those stats worse. And, you know, I guess I've got an echo in my head that was repeated by Gary Nixon. I don't know who the original quote was, but, you know, saying I treat everyone the same isn't good enough. And these sicker patients, you need to be more aggressive to compensate for the inequities that are already there. Mm-hmm. And very much make sure you're not using that slide the wrong way around and adding to the worst mortality stats because any retrospective data is easy to make self-fulfilling. Thanks, team. Okay, Marcus? Great. I think, yeah, the only thing that I'd probably like to add purely from a sedation point of view with the CPAP, I'd just like to point out that the majority of patients that require CPAP and benefit from CPAP will not require sedation. So... Don't just consider that, you know, every patient because of their tight fitting mask needs any form of sedation. If anything is required in a way of like a delayed sequence induction to optimize mm-hmm. the patient prior to a rapid sequence induction, then, you know, low doses of ketamine might be agent of choice. But other than that, as Jono and David pointed out, a good nurse explaining what's happening, calming the patient down, setting the pressure initially low, and then titrating the up is probably the main important thing for tolerance of CPAP. Great. Uh, so we've talked about. And I guess, the, Marcus, yeah. they might be. They, if you have got that sort of patient, that's a great one that I might be discussing with you or 
in yeah. terms of optimizing medications, how we manage this person, because it sounds like that's going to be a transition to an ICU referral. So a phone call early to get everyone on the same page sure. would be a really good use of, yeah. of time in that in that way. And then at least even if you do exactly the same treatment as you did before, it's been a collaborative team approach. Yeah, no, wholly, wholly supported. Um, with regards to the C system, so circulation, thick preload, pump, afterload, what type of fluid I put here and how much, what are the endpoints? I think which crystalloid you're going to use really doesn't uh, matter that much. can be saline, it can be Hartman's fluid. I would think that somewhere in the range of 30 milliliters per kilogram of a bolus is probably adequate in the endpoints I've slightly touched on. The message here is uh, we've seen up until five or six or seven years ago in the emergency departments, patients were filled with four, five, six liters of saline crystalloid before colleagues would think about a pressor, start that pressor early. So if you haven't got your patients at adequate endpoints with regards to perfusion pressures, then introduce that vasopressor early. And that uh, probably brings us into the discussion on whether patients need a central venous line for those pressors. I've done retrieval medicine for the last 14 years now here in New Zealand. I might have placed one or two central lines in that setting. So you don't need a central venous excess. There is plenty of emergency department literature around that indicates that vasopressors can be given safely peripherally, particularly the pure alpha agonists, meaning the metraminols and the phenylephrines. If your veins are large enough and they're given with carrier fluid and you're keeping an eye on the injection site and making sure that the infusion is running well, the risk of doing harm to these patients is extremely low. If your alpha agonist, meaning your phenylephrines or your metraminols are not achieving the anticipated effects, you will need to think about introducing a beta agonist to support the contractility of your right and left ventricle. And that can be as the next step, noradrenaline, or if you look at the CPGs, the clinical practice guidelines of the ambulance sector will be adrenaline. And that might be to counteract septic cardiomyopathy maybe in this patient on top of low vascular resistance to achieve perfusion pressures. And again, in sepsis, that is hugely dynamic. If you do ultrasounds of the heart, they might look like that at 0 0.0, and then you introduce vasoconstrictors, and an hour later, that ventricle that was hypodynamic an hour ago now is uh, is actually looking pretty poor with increased afterload. So you know, this is why point-of-care ultrasound is so hugely important because in the context of your uh, cardiorespiratory interactions, how much PEEP have you got? How much inotrope have you got running? It's so dynamic. There is some help, obviously, in formal echoes as well, but this needs to be done in the context of clinical examination and the clinical context of the patient. So the role of point-of-care echo in differentiation of shock and volume assessment is, is massive. This is what hyperdynamic ventricle looks like on point of care ultrasound echo. And if you do a weekend course, and if you do have access to point of care ultrasound, you'll be able to achieve images like that after a weekend course. We're going to teach it to our paramedics just for reasons really to look for free fluid, but also to exclude pneumothorax in the air because it's so it's impossible to auscultate. There's a lot of reasons for high airway pressures and hypotension. Not everyone needs chest decompression. So it is really, those systems are now financeable. They're not as expensive as they were. They're handheld. They've got good image quality. Some of them even have Doppler stuff on them. 
So on the left hand side, a normal hard, and on the right hand side, you can see a ventricle that's clearly poor and probably with an ejection fraction of somewhere between 10 and 15% globally down. And that might be the way that heart looks after it's been started on vasoconstrictors from left to right within an hour. I've certainly seen cases like that. So if you start looking, you're going to be surprised how dynamic those situations are. If you think afterload, think about early vasoconstrictors. Uh, so metraminol, this is our suggested uh, currently under review Dunedin ED sepsis pathway. Sierra Beck was happy for me to share that in the presentation today. Boluses, 0.5 to 1 milligram uh, Q2 to 5 uh, minutes as needed. The target pressure is 65 millimeters of mercury. Uh, consider an infusion if more than 10 milligrams of metraminol have been given. And my advice would always be to stop early with the syringe rival. So start that infusion early and think about calling intensive care. Uh, noradrenaline, start at 0.1 mic per kilogram per minute, and then titrate that up. We were talking about the threshold of 0.5 mics per kilogram per minute uh, to call the SMO. We would probably like to see that roughly at probably at 0.1 rather than 0.5. So again, that pathway is under, under review. But that is something you can do peripherally. You will not need a central line for that. From a disability just, point, yep. I was just going to jump in there, Marcus, yeah. because I think... Before we move on to D, it's really important that as rural generalists, I don't think we should be scared of presses. The evidence of fluid overloading people and sort of one more bag of fluid to hope we don't need to go to ionotropes or presses isn't a good way to treat people. And you know, you, you've heard it from a retrievalist himself that he doesn't place central lines for these patients, it's okay to give it peripherally. Mm. So I think that's somewhere where, as a rural group, we need to certainly move to make sure, you know, we have our simple recipes to give these peripherally. And that may mean that then the patient starts on those and we either look after them for a short term or send them or they come off. Mm. But I think it's really important that we all recognize that once you've put your 30 mils of per kg of fluid mm. in, so long as they don't have an ongoing loss and they aren't empty, mm. then banging more and more fluid and hoping for the best is not the right thing to yeah, do. No. Com, com, um, com, and you've given agree. us a yeah a great cheat sheet there to mm. to work off. Yeah, generally, generally don't like the word aggressive, but early aggressive therapy in this context, you know, to really achieve those parameters that I've talked about is adamant. Mm. And I really like the idea of again simple. If they have a peripheral afterload thing, you give an alpha agonist. Mm. And if they have a afterload and squeeze oh. thing, mm -hmm. you give a mixed agent. And to, yeah, then you pick one of each. So you have metarenamol and you have adrenaline. Um, and that will cover the vast majority of your bases. It's a great cheat sheet out there, I think, just in terms of the simplicity of for the nursing staff or whoever's going to draw them up actually to write down how you're going to do it and standardize that across so that if someone says noradrenaline, they just get, it's in the, where the a noradrenaline's kept and you've got your cheat sheet next to there. So it makes it quick and easy to actually, because I think the drawing up for a sick patient can A, take some time and B, add some st stress when it's not something we do that frequently. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, central lines are not a benign thing. And if you don't place 10 a year and I need to maintain my competency as well, because there's also registrars and people that are coming to the unit as well. Sometimes it needs to be consultant lines just purely to maintain my skills. So you need to do a certain number to be, uh, maintain your skill set in that regard and the likelihood that you're going to be successful might be high if you've just done an ICU run but it's not going to be high after two or three or 
four or five years uh, down the track. In Northam, we've actually got a localised protocol for the emergency department and the rural hospitals and these pre-filled bags that have noradrenaline in them Yeah, and a protocol that the nurses can easily work from. Yeah. Um, so I think it's only been around for maybe a year or two, but it certainly makes us in small places where you don't do this often feel much yeah. more comfortable about doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great strategies. If you look at the CPGs, this, you know, the National Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Ambulance Sector, there's the dirty bag of adrenaline. As an intensivist, you can see why I'm not a big fan. I like syringe trials and mics per kilogram per minute on every patient, but it works, you know, in rural centers, works in our ED here as well. Just got to be aware that you've got an infusion running with lots of potential to do harm as well at the same time. So it needs to be a dedicated person to look after that infusion. The maths on that infusion is really nice though, because if you put one milligram in a bag, you get one microgram per mil. And if you run it one drip per second, that's 60 milligrams, which is roughly one mic per kg per minute. (laughs) Right. Uh, Are we ready to go to disability? We've just stretched the one hour mark. Yeah, yeah. We always do, Marcus. All right. That's great. 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 My my Germanity in me, uh, 40 years of socialization in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) You can't take that out of me. (laughs) <laughs> so from a disability point of view, we're going to try to improve the cardiac output. And sometimes we do achieve a bit of GCS with that. We're going to improve the perfusion pressure. Sometimes the GCS comes up purely by doing that. We're going to control the temperature. We're going to make sure that everything metabolically that we can, it's mainly towards hypo and hyperglycemia. So we're going to try to correct it to some degree. And we're going to exclude other causes for low GCS and to look for signs of focal neurology. And then we're going to fully expose the patient. We've got a temperature already, head-to-toe examination. And E, sometimes you'll find, is also for electrolytes, which is important in this context. So again, we talked about the relevance and the importance, uh, particularly if you do something less frequent about a protocol and, and a pathway. This is the sepsis pathway for the Dunedin Emergency Department, and it'll be their bread and butter to look after patients with suspected sepsis. And uh, even the specialists there obviously see the values and the merits in having a pathway. We're obviously in the high-risk category group with our patient here. He's got decreased level of consciousness, his blood pressure is low, he's got increased respiratory rate, his sets are low, his heart rate's 140, and fast AF X, an expression of his inflammatory state. Uh, So this patient needs to be escalated to the most senior clinician that you've got available. And we're going to do blood cultures. We're going to do bloods. We're going to check whether this is a UTI, whether this is a chest infection, whether this is a wound infection, whether this is a meningitis, whether this is an endocarditis, everything you can initially think of for this patient. So you're going to give early empiric antibiotics uh, within the first hour of the presentation of this patient's. And we'll talk about some good choices depending on where you think this infection is most likely coming from. Uh, We've talked about the fluid boluses and ballpark figure was 30 milliliters per kilogram if there is not huge deficits. And we're going to think about measuring urine output and fluid balance charts. Blood cultures, take two sets. We all always need two times two. Otherwise, uh, you can't differentiate what's contamination and what's true infection. Uh, you can obtain it from a single venipuncture if you think a second site is unlikely to be possible. If you think about endocarditis, different steps from different areas are most likely important. And it is important to have uh, to know what bug you're dealing with. And it's just so much harder to do it after the antibiotics. But, you know, 
uh, can't stress enough the importance of early administration of antibiotics. And then you'll have a local protocol for what your local flora of microorganisms is. If you're dealing with unknown sepsis, our uh, regime here down south is kifuroxin gentamicin. Uh, if you're coming in with a uh, community grial pneumonia, it'll be keftrixin and a macrolide. And that can be one that you can give orally or IV if your patients can't swallow. Uh, there is obviously protocols here for UTIs, intraabdominal sepsis, skin infections, meningitis, neutropenic sepsis, and endocarditis. If you look at the new CPG guidelines that are going to be released, so this is the St. John Ambulance Protocols that are going to be released from April you will not find augmentin being in there any longer. You'll not find gentamicin in there any longer. So uh, the pre-hospital ambulance sectors agreed on kefazolin for skin infection and all others are going to get keftriaxone. So there's a bit of a change for you coming up and you need to be aware of that if you work in the rural specialist areas. This patient here, after initial resuscitation, his hemodynamics have somewhat stabilized on all red. And I can't see what rate I think it's 0.2 mics per kilogram per minute, just because my slides cut off here with the thumbnails of the panel. Uh, but blood oxygenation further deteriorates. And despite a CPAP of 10 on an FiO2 of 80%, his respiratory rate is now 30 per minute. He looks like he's getting tired and his GCS is low with a motor score of 5, ICE2, and V3. To transfer or not to transfer, I think you're probably not going to be comfortable looking after this patient long term because this patient will most likely end up being on a ventilator for a number of days. And there is huge potential for other organ dysfunctions. He's already got a degree of acute kidney injury, so he might need dialysis therapy for that. What type of transfer? So obviously, two, if you're in the hospital sector, you're going to call your ICU SMO or whatever pathways you've got in place. Uh, so this will most likely be an inter-hospital transfer with an ICU team. But we do have uh, areas, particularly here in the South Island, where the helicopter is right next to the, to the base of one of the rural hospitals. So you need to be aware of your capacities and capabilities of your paramedic ambulance crew. And there are certainly some trade-offs between skill and time. But it's probably best to leave that in the hands with the intensivist to decide on whether this patient is safely managed in the hands of the paramedic-facilitated inter-hospital transfer, which we do 60% of now here on the South Island, or whether this patient needs an ICU retrieval team. And then we've already discussed, does this patient need a central venous line? Indications, alternatives, and we haven't stressed the importance of intraosseous access. So uh, really, I think our threshold these days to place intraosseous for the patients that's tricky to cannulate or needs urgent access our threshold to place an IO is way lower than what that was five or 10 years ago. As the ICU retrieval team arrives, you're already setting up for an RSI. If you're an intensivist anesthetist, you like good control. So the likelihood that we're going to place an arterial line if the patient's on a whole lot of vasopressors, uh, vasoconstrictors is quite high. Normally adds another five or 10 minutes because online blood, blood Pressure monitoring is important. The alternative to that is that one person holds the hand on the radial or femoral and you get a, a continuous online pressure via that and you set your non-invasive blood pressure intervals at three minutes. Induction agent, uh, as per the CPGs and probably your local rural protocols as well, Bill, will be mainly based on, on ketamine and fentanyl as the main induction agents. And... Uh, co-drugs for that would be mirdazolam and for in the hands of the experienced person maybe propofol 
Paralytics, really only ones required these days. That's rocuronium 1.2 milligram per kilogram with a very fast onset given in the high dose as outlined here. So you can probably intubate the patient within 60 seconds and has just a whole lot of less side effects than saxomethonium. And then you do think about your post-RSI management. That means your sedation strategy for your now paralyzed patient and a ventilation strategy and the preparation to get this patient retrieved. Uh, the other one I like to add to my list of there is rescue medications. And of course, this patient's already on NORAD, so you've got yeah. that running. But certainly for those of us who aren't, often in RSIs, we don't have them already yeah. on inotropes. Yeah. Having something to bring the blood pressure up is yeah. Yeah. an extra one to have on that list. You, you need an RSI checklist. There's no way around that for your facility. You'd be surprised. I mean, you know, we intubate patients more often in the ICU than in the emergency department, let's say, not as often as in theaters, of course. But even for us experienced, you're surprised what you miss between 3 and 4 a.m. Uh, when you're not at your high mm. peak performance. And there's always something on the checklist that you've not thought about that might be the capnometry, that might be the, the adrenaline as a rescue strategy that Jono probably mentioned to be drawn up. Um, so the fluid that might not be there, it's always something you'd be surprised, even in the hands of the experienced teams, uh, how often you miss something. Just quickly touch on therapies in septic shock uh, that I've come across my career over the last 20 odd years were trials with activated recombinant human protein C. All of those were negative antithrombin 3, negative dose, high dose vitamin C. Looked pretty promising up until a year or two ago, a negative trial. And there are ongoing trials about extracorporeal blood purification to filter out the badness of sepsis and all of those trials have been negative as well. So unless there is an indication to put the patient on, on renal dialysis, uh, there is really no indication for extracorporeal blood purification. We do give steroids uh, and that has to do with the sensitivity of the blood vessels to vasoconstrictors, but in a very low dose. So we're talking 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone equivalent per day. Archipressin will be something that we'll utilize regularly in septic shock patients. And for PIDs, the guidelines are actually not too different. I've touched on the difference between ICU retrieval teams versus critical care. Paramedic facilitated into hospital transfers. It runs under the broad category of time versus skill critical, uh, meaning that if it's time, the paramedics do it. If it's skill, the ICU retrieval teams do it. And I'm obviously speaking on behalf of the paramedics here as well, being a medical director for one of the services. Uh, you'd be surprised how the landscapes changed of paramedicine over the last years and the scope of practice that an advanced care paramedic, meaning intensive care paramedics or, or critical care paramedics, what scope of practice they have these days. They spend days in theaters with us down here for their airway skills and how to run inotropes, uh, how to maintain sedation strategies. They spend time in the intensive care unit as well to manage unwell patients. So they, they've got a pretty good scope of practice, but as we all are in the rural areas, they've got their challenges with being a check of all trades across all spectrums, small patients, obstetric patients, uh, neurosurgical patients. Uh, so the, again, the exposure, the skill mix will be different from team to team, but they do have pretty high competency and you need to obviously be aware of the, the services, CPG extensions that depends on where those paramedics uh, operate. 
and uh, what level ATP authority to practice they perform. So in summary, we're dealing with high risk, low occurrence situation. As our patients will present with more advanced disease and comorbidities, you'll be involved in early discussion regarding prognostications and goals of care. So think back at that slide uh, with the number of organ dysfunctions and uh, outcomes. There's always outliers to the left and the right-hand side, obviously of that bell-shaped curve and your prognosticated outcome. And we're always happy to support if goals of care are supportive of protruding the patient into an ICU setting. Have protocols in place to guide you and your teams. Have systems in place uh, if the level of care required exceeds what you can offer locally. And that can be, you know, quite different from the daytime to the nighttime. Obviously, if you're the only person in your emergency department in rural Dunstall, rural Queenstown, and you've got a full ED, you sometimes might just need to ship patients purely on the basis of that. Whereas in other circumstances, you might be happy to look after that patient locally. We are aware of that. Have a plan B and C if your inter-hospital transfer team is unavailable or cannot fly or come. And telehealth or the colleague on the phone might be the safety net for that. And uh, I think overall, I really have to say that there is a whole lot of dance uh, really well. Most of the time, our ICU retrieval team comes and meets you and the patients. Uh, other thoughts, if we're committed to equity and access of care for our rural communities, we have to support and invest in you, meaning appropriate rural resources, create and maintain a broad-skill rural journalist workforce, rural-proof health policy, and that means sometimes that you need to be present in meetings where rural discussions are being held, so you need to be a strong advocate for your rural communities because very often... If you're in those meetings, the problems that are being discussed do not meet what your experience represents on a rural perspective. Uh, we have to provide the data to support our case. And I think your community or rural special community has done an excellent job in starting to create that data to support and raise the case. Facilitate transfer if level of care exceeds the local capabilities and capacities. And I think that is the last slide. So uh, thanks to everyone supporting our rural communities in difficult times. And I mean that in a economic way after COVID, but also with the recent meteorological events up north. Thank you. Thanks, Marcus. Dave, have you got something you want to say? Oh, I just thought that time versus skill critical, I think that's really important, not just for the retrievalist that's coming to pick you up, but for us to have in our mind when we're thinking about our patients that we have in front of us and how we're going to manage them and what do we do locally how do we optimize the patient and optimize that time critical nature in terms of having things done that are going to be useful but yeah. is the ct scanner being done they're going to be useful and save time or is that actually going to delay a transfer yeah. um, and i guess marcus question for you is how do we in that skill in that sort of time critical scenario maybe that you're coming in any case already on the or it might be the low how do we What's the best things that we as rural dots can do in terms of the handover for that time and skill critical for when you arrive to expedite care for you to actually get out of there and be the most useful? Yes, obviously, you know, high variability for cases, but uh, you're talking about something that's purely time critical. Let's say the, the AAA patient that's hypotensive might be the patient that I'm thinking of. 
really no evidence that the ICO retrieval team makes a difference at all. So, uh, you know, whatever fastest mean of, of getting that patient to a, a facility of definite care will be my answer for that. It, it depends on your system, David, I, I should say. If we've got a flight of 40 minutes towards you as the center, we will discuss with you what we'd expect, you know, have blood available, if that's available at your local center, good IV access, try to stabilize the patient, give TXA, all of that that can be done already at your end. And if we're facility or 45 minutes away and, and diagnostics are going to add to the care of this patient, we might advise you to do a CT of this patient. Um, I, I don't think we're experiencing huge holdups in getting the patients out once we've arrived. I think being in good communication, knowing each other's systems well, is really the main thing to make that uh, transition from rural to retrieval team to definite care really smooth. I'd agree. I think that's key, isn't it? Mm. Has anyone else got any burning comments they want to say? Joel, Jonathan, Jono? There's a lot of questions in the chat. I think we've started to get a little bit of banter around rural resourcing and <laughs> All right. we're hopefully we're hopefully encouraging some rural health policy advocates out there. So could be exciting, Marcus. Yeah, well, I must say, I've obviously been in the role as the medical director for HEMS for two years now. And uh, the CEO, when he approached me about all of this, already said, you know, there is a lot of uh, political payoffs in this landscape here, and you need to be prepared for that. I didn't quite me know what he meant by that. I'm clearly aware of what he meant by it uh, back then. So it's, you know, dealing with the uh, interagency, so people in Fatuora, people at Neso, and it's really important. I, I will encourage everyone that wants to support their rural communities to, to get involved in the politics of supporting our rural facilities, because otherwise uh, we're going to miss out. Yep, absolutely. Jono? I think that's a great point to leave everyone with a call to arms and reiterate what the people who trained me have been telling us for some time is the fact that we need to create our data and sit in the meetings and advocate for our communities. Mm. And then I think as a group of doctors, we're getting better, but historically we've valued being at the coalface and providing the care, which is really important, mm. but you can only fix one patient at a time doing that. And if you change a system, you can affect more. Mm. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. You clearly are an advocate for rural health <laughs> and uh, the, very lucky to have you down there. So anytime you feel like doing a sabbatical or, you know, exploring locoming in the North Island, I'm sure we'd greatly receive you. So we do really appreciate your time and your expertise and also to the panel, Dave, Joel and Jono. It's been a very interesting discussion this evening. I hope everyone has enjoyed it. And as I've said, just if you can fill out the feedback form, we'd really appreciate that because that does continue us being able to do these sessions. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm.